Welcome to the McCarthy Report, the podcast where I, Rich Lowry, discuss with Andy McCarthy the latest legal and national security issues. This week, what else? The Her Report and the Supreme Court oral arguments. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And please give this podcast and Andy McCarthy the glowing, indeed gushing, five-star reviews that they deserve on iTunes. And now, without further ado, I welcome to this very podcast through the miracle of Riverside, none other than... Andy McCarthy. Rich, how are you? Good, Andy. How are you? I'm good. I, I feel like I'm back on trial this week. It's like a, <laughs> it's like one of those weeks where you you think that, um, you know, we started the week with enormous stories um, between the, you know, the border collapse, the, the collapse of the border um, legislation, and Mayorkas's uh, impeachment. Yeah, and then we had that um, you know the immunity ruling piling on top of that from the DC Circuit, and by the time now we get to the end of the week, that that's like that happened eons ago. Yep, um, no doubt. So even the oral arguments feel a little old. We're going to get to those in a minute. Let's first go to the current obsession: this blockbuster Robert Hur report, where he says one of the reasons that he doesn't think charges are warranted against Joe Biden regarding the mishandling of these classified documents is that he has such a poor memory and that a jury would sympathize with him as a well-meaning old man with a poor memory. And this, uh, he had some instances in there that are quite uh, remarkable and distressing, Biden not being able to remember the, the years he started as vice president or ended as vice president, which is not yeah, you know, not not exactly a trick question. It's not like asking someone you know, what the nuclear triad is, or something like that. And didn't re- couldn't you know get within years the death of uh, uh, when when Bo Biden died. And this apparently is what really Biden took the greatest umbrage at. He was complaining to people about it all day yesterday, and then did a presser where he, uh, whatever else he did, did, did not convince people that he's not in a, a rickety state. So what's um, what, what's your top line takeaway from the Her report? And then we'll dive in. Well, I don't think it's very convincing as an argument for why he shouldn't be indicted. Uh, I think if Her was trying to uh, craft the predicate for invoking the 25th Amendment, there are parts of the report that uh, obviously seem like they tend in that direction. Um, before I, I, I guess, g- given where you, you went, Rich, before I get to um, why I think the report is legally flawed, I just want to address this business of Biden being upset and Democrats being upset. Um, I, I have a, a column that's going up on the website, hopefully, as we speak um, about this. But um, I, I think to the extent that people are piling on against her – and understand, I have no brief for her. Um, I'm just, you know, just trying to assess what prosecutors do here. The attacks on her are misdirected. If you want to be angry at someone over this information becoming public, the person to be angry at is Attorney General Garland, not her. And let me explain what I mean by that. In a normal criminal case, um, when prosecutors decide to exercise their discretion not to charge, the stronger the evidence is, um, the harder it is to justify not charging. And in a case like this, it looks to me like the evidence was very strong and they're groping for reasons not to charge. And they've obviously emphasized a great deal on his uh, obvious decline uh, mentally, uh, among other ways. Um, so in a normal case, which where we're talking about like thousands and thousands of investigations and calls that have to be made in, in the nature of, uh, uh, prosecutorial discretion that happen day in and day out all across the country. Once you decide not to charge, you close the file and move on. The public never finds out any of this information, right? Um, but since the 1970s, we've had this phenomenon of the special prosecutor, and there have been varying iterations of it. We've discussed them a number of times. We discussed it a lot in connection with the Mueller investigation. We discussed it in connection um, with uh, the Russiagate investigation of John Durham. 
Um, so the thing is, since the 70s, in connection with these investigations, it's become customary for the report that the special counsel does in which the special counsel is supposed to uh, explain his decisions either to charge or not charge, uh, that report is customarily made public. And it's gotten to the point where Congress demands it, the media demands it. And when I said this is, uh, this is Attorney General Garland's doing, I'm not saying I blame Garland for doing it. I think, you know, holy hell would have been raised if he said, you know, we're not going to uh, produce this report publicly. But just so everybody understands, what the regulations say is that the special counsel at the conclusion of his investigation is supposed to file, and this is a quote from the statute, a confidential report where you explain to your superior, the attorney general, what the charging decisions were and why you made them. Um, these are conversations that go on in prosecutors' offices every day. And one of them, uh, one of the things that always comes up is if you decide to, to charge a case, what assets, well, assets is the wrong word in this context, but what, what can be said about the defendant that would make him either charming or sympathetic or uh, in some way winning with the jury? Because all of these prosecutions, if you bring an indictment, the, impl the implication of that is you are ready to go to trial in front of a jury. So part of the prosecutorial decision always is how is the, how is the jury going to be hit by this case, by the way we're going to prove it, and by the status or characteristics of the defendant. So to the extent that Biden is upset that, they're, they're, you know, that the prosecutor asked him these basic simple questions, and they hit close to home as the, the Bo Biden does. And by the way, uh, you know, just as an aside, Joe Biden's got to figure out the how he's going to deal with the Bo thing. I mean, we're all very sympathetic to that. You'd be inhuman if you weren't. But it can't be that like, when he decides that it's a, a strategic coup for him to invoke it, it's fine. And then if anybody else takes it into, an, into consideration, it's some kind of a great offense. I mean, it's got to be one or, or the other, right? But um, the problem here is that these kinds of conversations go on all the time. And if I had to like, let's say I had to go into my boss, the US attorney, and I said, um, I have a very strong case here, but I don't think we should bring it. And part of the reason I don't think we should bring it is th this guy's going to take the stand and he's going to be very sympathetic to the jury. And the other thing, and th this is getting no play at all, but it ought to get play. The other thing I would have to tell my boss is, by the way, if we indict this case, it may take a long time to get it to trial because a competent defense lawyer, even if the defendant doesn't like it, may argue that he is too mentally unfit to contribute to his defense and therefore to stand trial because the standard is you have to be it, it, to to be able to stand trial you have to understand um, the ramifications of what's going on and be able to provide meaningful help to your defense um, so any prosecutor who was competent who was in hers position and her is obviously very competent would have to explain to his superior in in explaining why we're not charging um, here's the way I think Biden would go over with a jury. And if we indict Biden, we may end up in months of litigation over whether he's fit to stand trial or not. And the offense here evidently is that this has all become public because it's a special counsel case, not a normal case. But the special counsel regulations required her to write this report detailing comprehensively why he, why he came to the conclusion he came. Then the next, reg that's regulation 600.8. The next regulation 600.9 puts it in the attorney general's court to decide whether and how much of the report becomes public, including none. So when her hands the report over, it's a confidential report by statute. He doesn't put it out. It's up to the attorney general. And then Gar Garland has a choice. Do I put this report out? and embarrass the president, 
or do I not put it out and we're going to deal with the political fallout of not putting it out, which would be over the top, right? Um, so I don't, I don't blame Garland for putting the report out because it's become customary to do that. And if he hadn't done it, that probably would have been almost as politically damaging as what's actually in the report. But it's not hers fault. He had to do what he did. So, so Garland, if Garland objected to this, would he say, Mr. Hur, go back and rewrite it? Or would he just say, I'm, I'm redacting this? Or could he do uh, either or both? He can do both. You know, this is supposed to be a consultation as time goes on. It would be unrealistic, Rich, especially in an investigation like this. You know, the the re- the regulations are unrealistic in a lot of ways, but one of the ways is this kind of um, uh, suspended animation that the special counsel is in, in the sense that the regs are supposed to project the uh, the image that he's acting independently of the Justice Department because you're not supposed to have a special counsel unless the Justice Department is too conflicted to handle the case in the normal course, right? But because of the constitutional concerns that Justice Scalia outlined famously in Morrison versus Olson, a prosecutor derives his authority only from the president, only as a, no one in the executive branch has power, only the president has power. So, The attorney general and ultimately the special counsel are delegates of the president's authority. They can't be outside the chain of command, which is why, you know, we we observed this for years, right, in connection with Mueller. Trump always wanted to, you know, he was always grousing, saying he was going to fire Mueller. And the reason it got everybody whipped up is because he could. You know, nobody could doubt that he had the authority to, to fire him. President does. So... We're supposed to, on the one hand, believe that, you know, these guys are independent actors. And then on the other hand, we're supposed to understand that they're also in the chain of command uh, and that hers investigation uh, occurs with Biden's power under the supervision of Biden's uh, attorney general. And the, the special counsel regs also say that the special counsel is beholden to the regulations of the Justice Department. So even though you're not supposed to be getting day-to-day supervision from the attorney general, you're getting some supervision, there's consultation that goes on, and you have to follow the Justice Department guidelines. So they're not really independent. Um, At the end, the report gets submitted. um, And what then happens, Rich, I think is more of a political thing than a legal thing in the sense that... Every attorney general knows that if he tried to withhold the report, Jim Jordan's going to be there with a subpoena tomorrow morning, right? We want the report. So this is going to become instantly a hot number, and everything about the way Garland handled it would be a hot number. So the best thing for Biden, uh, for Garland, if he's worried about himself more than anything else, is I'm just, I'm not redacting this. I'm not doing nothing to it. I'm just putting it out there, which is evidently what he did. Because remember when 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 Barr got the Mueller report, I think three weeks went by before a largely unredacted, I think what was it, like four or five percent of it was grand jury material that they withheld, but like everything else was uh, produced. So that was about a, I remember in right, it's like a 400 something page report. And it took three weeks to turn it around. Garland supposedly got um, hers report on Wednesday and put it out on Thursday. And I suspect he put it out on Thursday because wise asses like myself were on television saying, oh, the report that they're going to put out on Friday night before the Super Bowl. So I think that, you know, (laughs) that plan, I'm sure that was what they were going to do, but I think they were getting enough uh, blowback from that, that they said they might as well put it out. So they did. So, who is Robert Hur? I, I, any should we have any qualms about the need to appoint anyone special counsel and the, the appointment of this guy in particular, who instantly is being portrayed as a, a Trump hack by the left? No, I think he's a. Um, I, I, I do want to talk about the um, shenanigans because this is this is Garland and Biden being hoist on their own petard. I'll get, I'll get to that in a second. But um, as far as 
his background, my my understanding is he's like a protege of Rod Rosenstein, which doesn't shock me. But I think he clerked on the Supreme Court, maybe for Justice Rehnquist. Um, and he's got a reputation for one, being one of these, you know, career prosecutors who, um, like Rosenstein's thing was, um, he he needed to be popular with both sides of the aisle, right? I'm 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 just a prosecutor. I'm a, I follow the law. I don't, you know, I'm right. Not so, so he's a Republican, but they wouldn't they wouldn't, you know, he wasn't Trumpy or or, or uh, rich. Mega. The guy's been the guy's been working the case for what is it, eighteen months, something like that, mm-hmm. two years. Have you ever heard a word about it? Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard a word of complaint that he was the guy that caught the case? Mm-hmm. No. In fact, they were pretty pleased. He like there hasn't been a peep out of his office. He was quietly going about his business. He was clearly in a good cooperative relationship with Biden's lawyers. He was getting a lot of cooperation out of them. Uh, he was spending, it looked like to me, less money than some of the other investigations. And it sounded to me, and it didn't surprise me if he was trained by Justice Rehnquist, it sounded to me like he was putting his head down and quietly going about his job. Um, so, you know, they're they're re- reacting to the product. But if this guy was a hack, we would have heard that a long time ago. Like the minute Jack Smith got the case, you heard a million things about Jack Smith, Right. Um, you didn't hear a peep about this guy. So he's got no reputation for being ideological and certainly not like a MAGA guy or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I do want to talk about the shenanigans here because there's something delicious about this, even though I don't, I I mean, I, this kind of stuff angers me, but I, I do take some, I do get some schadenfreude out of how this all works out. Schadenfreude is all we got these days, Andy. There's never pure joy, but there is some Schadenfreude. <laughs> oh, but we, but there's a lot of it, Rich. I mean, <laughs> and if it's what we got, then it's what we got. You know, yeah. when the Mets, when the Mets lost a hundred games every year, I was like, but Seaver pitches every five days. You know, yeah, no, I was, I was worse when the Yankees. Um, there's one year that the Red Sox, uh, the Yankees were totally out of it, but the Red Sox, it was the chicken and beer scandal. They just totally tanked. <laughs> it's like the players weren't into it anymore and they didn't like, I think it was Frank Kona was manager, but they're, they're supposed to be watching the games, but they're eating chicken and drinking beer in the clubhouse. <laughs> they just collapsed. They lost to the Orioles who were a last place team. Then the last game of the season, it was, it was wonderful. It redeemed the whole season for me. But anyway, let's. Uh, it sounds like the softball team I used to manage. Frankly. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Megan Kelly is like, I skipped the first minute and I still get baseball. 18 we minutes. fooled you, Megan. We did it to you this time. We slipped it in the middle. Um, but this is why this is this is why this is delicious. As we know, um, it's not like in cases where President Biden could get hurt. The prior experience we have is that Attorney General Garland trips over himself to appoint a special counsel. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he had to be pushed to the point of utter, complete embarrassment to finally have a special counsel in the Hunter Biden case where there's an actual conflict of interest and where he should have had a special counsel for day one. But he waited until the sweetheart plea deal blew up and he had no other choice. And then he fraudulently invoked the special counsel regulations by deeming as a special counsel the very guy who was the author of the sweetheart plea deal and who's not eligible under the rules to be a special counsel, right? So they've manipulated these regulations in a very political way. Remember how her gets appointed. The first thing that happens is Trump has the Mar-a-Lago documents scandal, right? And then Trump decides he's going to do early announcement of his candidacy for a variety of calculations uh, having to do with fundraising and and other stuff that, that Trump was dealing with. So as soon as Trump said that he was formally running for president, um, Garland, you could see his little wheels turning, said, hmm, um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to appoint a special counsel for Trump because we know that Trump's political argument in the campaign is going to be that Biden unleashed the law enforcement system, the police powers of the executive branch to go after Trump. So what we'll do 
even though there's really no predicate for a special counsel here, even though there's so obviously no conflict between the Biden Justice Department and an investigation of Trump that the Biden Justice Department had been investigating Trump for almost two years without anybody suggesting there needed to be a special counsel because there's clearly no conflict. But Biden said, I mean, but Garland said, if I appoint a special counsel, then we'll be able to con the public into thinking this is all Jack Smith. It's got nothing to do with the Biden Justice Department. It's certainly got nothing to do with Biden. These decisions about whether to indict are being made by a totally independent actor who we don't control in the slightest, even though he exercises Biden's power and he answers to Garland. But that was the story they wanted to run with, right? The reason Jack Smith is in the case, in a case where they did not need a special counsel, is because they thought politically, in terms of the 2024 election, it would be better to have a special counsel. And that would have all been hunky-dory, except about, was it a week, two weeks after this big to-do of uh, appointing Jack Smith, it emerges that Biden has a classified (laughs) documents problem. And the thing is, when Smith was appointed, the big thing was not the Capitol riot. The big thing was the Mar-a-Lago documents case, right? So now, a week or two later, Garland is stuck. He just appointed a special counsel for Trump on classified documents. And all of a sudden, it turns out that Biden has done the same thing. And this time, there's an actual conflict of interest because it's the Biden and Justice Department investigating Biden. So he's got no choice at that point. Um, be- he didn't appoint a special counsel. We know from the way that he, that he handled the Hunter Biden case, he didn't appoint a special counsel because he profoundly believed there was a conflict of interest. He appointed a special counsel because he had appointed one for Trump and he was stuck. He had no reason. But he shouldn't have appointed one for Trump. And if he hadn't appointed one for Trump, we would never have gotten her. So this is a question I, I've always wondered about, but never asked. So, so we've talked about this a lot, and you've said there's no conflict between the Biden Justice Department and investigation of Trump. So what conflict, what constitutes a, con, if it's not a conflict to investigate the guy who's a likely nominee against the president you serve, what, what, what is a conflict? It's when the the personal attachment or the professional attachment between the prosecutor and the target of the investigation raises the possibility that the prosecutor will bury the case for the benefit of the target. Mm-hmm. So there's a conflict with Biden. If they're investigating Biden, that's a- Correct. But he didn't, he wouldn't, you know, that didn't move the attorney general, mm-hmm. right? Um, all of his special counsel appointments have been completely political. I mean, you know, he he pretends like he's following the rules, but he ain't following the rules. I mean, all of this stuff is political. Yeah. So there's a, a, a major emphasis in the debate over the report, over this concept and word of willfulness. Biden last night said it, it wasn't willful. Look, just read read to page 218 says it wasn't wasn't willful. I know it's a big report, a big, big thing, but get, get to 218. And then you, you actually look at the report, and it's the first sentence uh, or second sentence of, of page one of the executive summary, w- willfully um, kept and disclosed I- information from, from these classified documents. But, you know, there, there are various instances, or, you know, they were in different places, different incidents, and her is putting the the willful drawing the willful line in different places, so you can you can look at a random place in the report that says it wasn't willful, and also he's drawing the line in another way. You know, I might think it's willful, uh, my team might think it's willful, but will a jury think it's willful? And there probably you know, maybe there's not enough evidence for a jury to conclude that without a reasonable doubt. So, what do you make of this aspect of the report and the whole concept of willfulness? Does it? And this is a, a leading question, a segue. I know the answer. Is it the right standard to be uh, applying in a case of this sort? Well, if if you can prove willfulness. It's a it's a boon for the prosecutor because that makes a number of different charges possible, including charges that uh, you know, such as gross negligence, where you know, if you can prove gross negligence, then then I'm sorry, if you can prove willfulness, which is just so people understand, willfulness is the highest criminal intent standard uh, in the law. Uh, it almost, not quite, but almost uh, defies the old adage that uh, ignorance of the law is no excuse. I mean, basically, to act willfully is you have to know 
uh, that what you're doing is wrong uh, and do it anyway. Um, so you, it's the, the thought is that you act with a conscious purpose to violate the law. Um, and if, if the prosecutor is in a position of being able to prove that, then, you know, to prove gross negligence where, you know, essentially what you're saying is that there was almost no intent at all. It was just like the guy recklessly didn't uh, comply with his responsibilities. Um, it's easy to prove that if you can prove willfulness. So <clears throat> if you can prove willfulness, you want to do that because there's other charges that you can bring that are that are uh, predicated on willfulness. Um, but I think probably, Rich, it's, maybe it's easier to explain um, – why he so confidently concluded willfulness, uh, that is her, uh, notwithstanding what Biden is saying. What you would find in any criminal case, by the way, and this is the thing that goes on in every, in almost every criminal case, what the defense always tries to do is parse the, the proof, you know, item by item, document by document, uh, et cetera. And what the judge ends up telling the jury at the end of the case after the defense is done this day after day is that um you don't sound like you're very excited about this process andy wasn't wasn't the favorite aspect of your job maybe (laughs) you mean watching the defense do this as i sat at the table and wasting everyone's time yeah well i i didn't there was there's only one case i remember doing a crossword puzzle while they were doing (laughs) um but at the end of the case the judge tells the jury that you know pieces of Evidence is supposed to be looked at in conjunction, not in isolation. And, you know, you don't check your common sense at the door. You look at the whole uh, mosaic of behavior. So um, let's think about what would not be willfulness, right? And I imagine this may apply to to Vice President Pence, although we never got a, uh, a read on exactly what he had in his house, right? But let's say you had a bunch of stuff that was brought from your office in the in the uh, vice president's um, uh, office in the White House, um, and it ended up at one of Biden's uh, homes in Delaware, and there were boxes of uh, you know souvenirs and and stuff that he was allowed to take, and then there was a small box of documents that wasn't related to anything of importance or in particular, but. You know, they're classified, and a lot of the stuff that comes across the desk of the president and the vice president is classified information. But there's no reason to think that Biden was particularly interested in that, or if he had been interested in it at one time, uh, it was in connection with his responsibilities as vice president long ago and far away, and he may have lost track of the, the documents. They may not have realized they had them, and when the office got moved from one place or another, um, the documents sort of trailed along, but nobody was paying that much attention to it. Now, it's an irresponsible thing to do. Uh, There's a possibility you could say that it was gross mishandling of classified information, but you can see how something like that would happen without somebody actually trying to retain classified information in a place where the person knows it shouldn't be. Um, Here's the problem for Biden. Some of the documents that he's got are from his time in the Senate. Senators are not allowed to take documents. It's not like the president where, you know, they bring you documents and, you know, it's part of your day-to-day. It's not part of your day-to-day in the Senate. Even if you're the Armed Services Committee or the Intelligent, you know, these guys have other responsibilities. If they want to review classified information, um, they don't send an agent to go bring it to them because their office is like a skiff. Um, they have to go to a place in the Capitol to read it, and they're not allowed to take it out. So if he had stuff from that time, then he if he if he had it, he had to have taken it illegally. There's no other way for him to to have it. And then if you have other things where it turns out like he's deeply involved in something and he's making notes. On top, on top of these documents, which, as I understand it, some of the notes may have been made after the documents were moved to the places where they weren't supposed to be. That suggests that you're very aware of the fact that you have these documents. You have them for a specific reason, and you're looking for follow-up. Like some of his doc, some of the the annotations I saw are um, 
there's a description in a classified document of something that's of importance to him in connection with Ukraine. And the document refers to like exhibits A or annexes A, B, and C. And he writes a little note at the bottom that says, get annexes A, B, and C. Um, that kind of thing is highly suggestive of that you know you have the documents, you know that you have them in a place that they're not supposed to be, that this is not um, a, a situation where something happened by accident or mistake. It was very conscious. And, you know, I, when this first erupted and we first talked about it, Rich, I, I said at the time on the podcast that I thought that Biden would have a problem because it seemed to me that there was a rationale for why he had the documents, at least in part, that was going to, it was understandable, it was rational, but it was going to hurt him as far as the criminal law was concerned. And that is, he was writing a memoir about the intermingling of his responsibilities as vice president and the fact that he was dealing day after day with the fact that his son was dying and ultimately died. So, he had a reason to have these documents because he was writing a book. He was writing a memoir and he needed them to, you know, because he at least was thinking about, you know, one day he might run for president and it would be very embarrassing for him if he wrote in a memoir, um, as, as hard as this would be to believe with Joe Biden, if he wrote in a memoir that the way some um, important event happened was one thing and then it turned out that that was completely wrong, he'd be very embarrassed. So if he had documents because he needed to refer to them in order to write about what he wanted to write about, um, it's perfectly understandable. It's just illegal. Right. So th there's also, <clears throat> Biden said last night, <clears throat> excuse me, recording Friday morning here, that uh, he referred to the Oh, I just found the classified stuff downstairs. And what Biden said, if I remember correctly, was, well, that what I meant was, you know, confidential, because this was a, a private note from me, the vice president, to the president about a sensitive policy matter. But the report explicitly cites this this letter and refers to it as classified. You know, I mean, <laughs> you don't, you know, as a prosecutor, you don't always, you know, you don't always get a piece like that. <laughs> I remember we, in the, in the pizza connection case years ago, it, uh, we had, we had a very tough case against one of the defendants um, who was a baker. And it turned out that we had a, um, a scrap of paper that was taken out of one location that had a, um, had the formula on it for how much they were charging per kilo for, um, I can't remember if it was heroin or cocaine. Um, but we always said Sal must've been making pizza that day because we found his thumbprint on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it's like one of those things where if it's his thumbprint, he's guilty, you know, I mean, otherwise, it, you know, otherwise there's no connection of him to it. So, so you, you always very modestly say, you know, you're, you're not a pundit and you defer the, the rest of us on, on that stuff. But for instance, the, the McCarthy, the, the vote to install him as speaker, you figured it out before a lot of the rest of us. Like, Rich, it's going to be present votes. Just watch. It was, it was present votes. So do you have any instinct on whether Biden is ultimately the nominee? A lot of people on our side is like, there's no way, you know, they're, 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 they're dumping them. I, I really do. Um, in all sincerity, defer to you guys on this because I really don't see how they could run him. And I do think that, um, you know, I'm only half joking when I talk about the 25th Amendment. I think like, mm -hmm. you know, um, do, uh, do I think like Kamala Harris is daring enough uh, that she would invoke it? And do I think there's enough support in Biden's cabinet that they, you know, that they would run anywhere with that? Um, it's my instinct, Rich, is that I every time I have to check myself, it's because I think that there's a point that would be too far for these guys to go. And in the back of my head, I always have somebody saying, or some, some little voice saying to me, you know, these guys want to win. There's no way that they're going to, if they think they're going down in flames with this guy, they'll figure it out. Like it won't be pretty, but it doesn't have to be. And I remember, you know, when Torricelli, I was in the U S attorney's office when Torricelli, uh, cause it was our case. The when Torricelli had his problems. Right. Uh, the torch. And 
you know, when they moved him out and moved in, who's the old guy who, oh, Lautenberg. Yeah. Um, it was totally illegal. Mm-hmm. And everybody said up until that point, they'll never do it, you know, because the time had, go- the time had passed under Jersey law. There was no judge. And I, I remember at the time thinking, you know, who appointed all the judges in Jersey, right? They're all Democrats. Are you going to tell me that they're going to stop if the Democrats want to swap out a candidate? And they did. You know, ultimately, they swapped out uh, they swapped out Torricelli for uh, for Lautenberg. So, I, you know, I, I've, I kind of feel like I've seen this before. On the other hand, I have a lot of respect for Phil in his analysis of this stuff, which is – and yours as well, which, which is much – sort of closer to the ground than mine. Phil has been very strong on the idea that um, they're just kind of stuck with Harris and Harris may poll worse than Biden. I don't know if he'll, if she'll continue to poll worse than Biden. Um, and I think even Phil may be, um, may be balking it's a awful. little bit. Yeah, he's he 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 is beginning to wonder how how can they run this guy? I mean, they can't run him, but they can't replace him, so they're going to run him. That's that's my my view. But so I I, ha- I have a plan to help him. Yeah, <laughs> to help Joe. I'm 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 actually. Um, yeah, this is a good idea. I, I interrupted I- this uh, the this very important uh, thing I was writing in order to do this very podcast, Rich. Um, but I think if Biden were smart, which is like you know, take that with the grain of salt it deserves. Um, and it might be impossible for him to do after the performance last night, but who the hell knows? Um, but what Biden ought to do is pardon Trump on the classified information counts in the Mar-a-Lago indictment. And I, I never got back around to this when we started to talk about it. But the reason I think that um, hers charging decision is incoherent, other than the willfulness versus um, uh, gross negligence thing, is they harp yet again on two things that are irrelevant. One is that Biden cooperated with the investigation, whereas Trump didn't. But the thing is, in the United States, you're expected to cooperate with lawful demands of investigators, right? That's why we indict people who don't. It's that you get a medal for being cooperative. It's that you get an indictment if you're not cooperative, right? So being cooperative with investigators is not a rationale for not charging the person with whatever crime the investigators were probing at that time. Um, and if you, if their comparison here t- between Trump and Biden on the two tiers of justice thing is that Trump obstructed the investigation and Biden didn't, the easy answer to that is then get rid of the classified information counts with respect to Trump and just charge them or just deal with the obstruction charges. And I think if Biden were to do that, number one, it would, you know, first of all, the left couldn't go too crazy, I think, because one of the selling points of this is, look, if that case in Mar-a-Lago is a classified documents case, it's never getting a trial prior to Mm -hmm. election day. Whereas if you sweat it down to an obstruction case, you have a chance of getting to trial. Mm -hmm. Um, so it also would make it look like Biden is acting rationally. It would make it look like he appreciates the problem of the two-tier justice system and he's trying to address it. He would look like he was being magnanimous toward Trump on something that Trump actually deserves a little bit of a break on given what happened with Biden and what happened with Hillary. So I think it would push against some of the stuff that he's just like um, you know, a doddering incompetent and he doesn't know what the hell is going on around him. This would actually be a very rational thing to do. And I think he'd make a lot of inroads with people um, in the middle who would think it was pretty yeah. reasonable. Yeah. He needs to be able to do some some big and, and creative things like that. Uh, unlikely that he's going to do them. Let me do a quick plug for NR Plus. If you adore Andy McCarthy and you want to read all his stuff, you got to sign up for NR Plus, digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Com, your way past our metered paywall, your way if you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads in your way if it floats your boat to comment on articles and blog posts. So great deal all around. Please join tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers as a member of Enterplus today, tomorrow, or the day after. So Andy, let's do these oral arguments. Uh, did not go well for 
Colorado. This council was pretty much uh, chopped up by everyone when it wasn't the conservatives after him. It was the progressives after him. What did you make of it? Well, I, I, on the last thing, Rich, I think, you know, the conservatives being after him made sense. I, we always we always look at this, and I'm, I don't mean this as a rap because I do it myself, but we always look at the partisan affiliations of the judges when we're trying to predict what they're going to do. And I think in some cases, you know, partisanship and ideology go hand in hand, but they don't always. And in this case, ideology was the thing, not not partisanship. So with respect to the conservative judges who are, you know, each of them, if you take the six of them, it's more or less case by case, but um, they're all, they lean originalist and textualist, right? So they had a big problem, Colorado did, with the conservative justices because the text of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not support what they wanted to do. Um, it actually says, as it was pointed out a number of times by, I think, uh, mainly by um, Justice Gorsuch, but others as well, uh, the amendment only says that you can't be a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in one of these disqualifiable positions. It doesn't say you can't run. So what the state was was asserting was a right of disqualification that was more expansive than the amendment that they were uh, invoking. So they had a problem with that. And historically, as Justice Thomas pointed out, they couldn't come up with an example of a case where a state um, invalidated a federal official. You know, there's lots of evidence of states invalidating state officials. Um, there was some pushback from the defense on that, but the historical record is not strong. And as 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 came uh, up with one guy, I think. Yeah, but the, but the thing is, and I thought. Thomas was really good on this. He said, you know, there were Confederates all over the place after the Civil War, <laughs> and um, a lot of them were looking for office, and a lot of them were um, uh, candidates, and et cetera. If what you're saying is the correct interpretation of the statute, there should be scads of examples, and you can't come up with any. Um, so I thought that was a pretty good – so with the conservatives, you've, you're, you're behind the eight ball on text and history, right? So now with the three Democrat-appointed justices – you know, we think, okay, they're going to be on the anti-Trump train, and these are Democrats who want to um, strip Trump off the ballot. But I think the thing we should probably have been more mindful of, or at least I, I feel like I should have been more mindful of, is they are progressives. And there is nothing historically or legally more important to the his, the progressive governance project in the history of the United States than the 14th Amendment. Um, almost all of it is built in one way or another, or, or the strands uh, in one way or another come from the 14th Amendment, which in a very compelling way, Chief Justice Roberts pointed out in the, at the argument, um, the whole point of it was to transfer power from the states to the federal government. The whole idea was to restrict what the states could do. And yet what Colorado's position was, was that in terms of seeking the most important national office, a single state could disqualify the candidate from the ballot, and that might have a preclusive effect under collateral estoppel in a bunch of other states as well. Um, and I think that the the progressive justices were not going to sign on to something, um, no matter what the at least not in this political situation, um, they were not going to sign up to something that would weaken the 14th Amendment, which generally, you know, every time they use, the, they get involved in interpreting the 14th Amendment and become stronger, not weaker. So I think they had an uphill climb with the ideology of both sides. So do you put any stock in the argument that, you know, uh, the, the states run elections? I, we've talked about this a lot, right? We talked about it after... 2020 a lot when we had all that election litigation and a state has an interest in seeing that its its votes aren't wasted. So if you have a guy who who should be barred from serving the the uh, in in the office even if the language doesn't say, you know, he can't run, it makes sense for for our state to make the call for the good of our voters that their votes should not be wasted on this guy that we believe should be excluded and can be excluded when he when he shows up there and the electoral votes are counted and he's and he's going to be 
inaugurated. So this is um, th- this this makes sense for us to do. And and you know, if you don't like it, Supreme Court, you can guess what? You can review it. But um, this is this is our call under federalism. I think that's the strongest argument in their favor. The reason I, I think it doesn't carry the day, and Gorsuch was very good on this, I thought, at the argument, is I don't think you can have it both ways. For example, are the states saying that because they have that kind of uh, ability over presidential elections that they could disqualify somebody for being an insurrectionist even if the, there was no 14th Amendment? Mm-hmm. They're not saying that, right? They're saying we have – no, we're relying on the 14th Amendment. Well, the 14th Amendment comes after the structure of the Constitution was first ratified, right? Mm-hmm. The structure that they're relying on. And an amendment is intended to change the Constitution, right? In this instance, I, I've always thought that equally as important as Article th- or Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is Section 5 of the 14th Amendment – which says that Congress, not the states, Congress has the power to uh, implement or enact legislation to enforce the provisions of the 14th Amendment. Uh, that's not to say that we, don't, we haven't historically seen states enact legislation in support of the 14th Amendment. And the law is that as long as they enact things that are consistent with the 14th Amendment, they should be allowed to do that. Um, but I think the argument that they're making, I don't think they can have it both ways. I don't think they can say, we rely on the 14th Amendment to to enact state provisions that disqualify people, but we think we can go beyond the 14th Amendment because they're not, they're not applying the 14th Amendment. They're changing the 14th Amendment. Mm-hmm. But, but this, this question, though, Rich, it does bring up an important point that where, where I'm afraid that we're going to see this case again. Because yeah, at the electoral count, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I think that at the end, right? I'm sorry, didn't Justice Jackson raise that at the end? I think she, I think she's the one who did. But the thing is, you know, we're all expecting. I'm expecting a nine nothing decision. I, you know, I heard some people say they thought Sotomayor was. I didn't think Sotomayor was sympathetic on the question of whether a state could. I think she thinks that maybe there's leeway for. Uh, states to regulate other offices, but not the presidency. And if they have to go narrow enough to decide it that way, they 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 probably will. But I think this is going to be nine nothing. But to get that consensus, I think they have to stay away from what an insurrection is. Yeah, and or if they don't, reason, is I'm sorry, or what engaging is. Yeah, and if they don't do that, then I could easily see if Trump were to win the election, I could easily see the Democrats in Congress saying that they're that they don't think he should take office because he's an insurrectionist. Yeah, why not? I mean, it's Congress's responsibility. So how about, um, and we're going to run out of time here, but how about the the argument that um, both Murray and, and this this other lawyer on, on his side, who just spoke briefly, made that, you know, a Stevenson, lot of- Stevenson, I think. Yeah, right. Seems a lot of the, the complication in this case has to do with the circumstances around Trump. But if someone showed up at the Secretary of State's office and said, I engaged in insurrection. You know, this is what I did. This is the government I set, set up, the traitor, treasonous government that was waging war in the United States, and it got snuffed out. And I'm running for president. Put me on the ballot. <laughs> there wouldn't be such con- – yeah. Well, of course, no, you're not, you're not getting on the ballot. The same way we know this, this other character is uh, not a natural-born citizen, and Colorado has st- struck this person, but other states are leaving them on because they, their standards aren't as high for whoever they, they put on the ballot. Does that, that carry any water with you? Well, it doesn't. It reminds me of my, uh, as I was listening to that, I'm thinking of, um, this must be pizza case day. I'm I'm, I'm thinking about Luigi Roncesvalli, who was a- um, (laughs) Of course you are. (laughs) I am. Luigi was uh, one of the great minds of the fourth century, and he was a contract murderer for the Bonanno family of Cosa Nostra. And he 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 had committed like 13 murders- but they never had any evidence on him. And he was out of money and he, was, he told the boss of the family he needed help. He needed counsel. And the boss was like, yeah, you know, go scram because he's like a low level button. And Luigi's like, you either help me or this is over. And they didn't pay any attention to him, which they should have. Mm-hmm. So he gave him to like four o'clock in the afternoon. They didn't come through. And he went to the police station and he said, I committed 13 murders. 
and gave himself up all completely. Like, um, and the reason I, I bring that example up is mainly because it's fun. But um, the the main reason is no one would think that Luigi goes right to federal prison, right? Still have to have a trial, still a process. You know, guy can come in and say, I did it. I'm completely guilty. I'll show you where the bodies are buried. I'll show you what I use to, to commit the murder. We're still going to give him a trial. Or if we don't give him a trial, he's going to get court proceedings. He's going to get counsel appointed. He's going to get indicted. We're going to go through the whole process. And the same thing is true mm-hmm. with respect to the guy who shows up and says, I'm an insurrectionist. Or Congress does. You put him on the ballot and then you trust Congress will bar him. There's, there's got to be a process. And I think this this whole thing is, if you believe, as I do, that the, that it was Congress that's supposed to enact the laws that enforce the 14th Amendment, what we know is after the 14th Amendment, and this was this Griffin's case that, that, that they uh, were talking about many times during the um, oral argument, there was a lot of back and forth about whether that was a correct interpretation or not. But what nobody disputed, well, I mean, Alito may have disputed a little bit, but w- there wasn't much dispute about the proposition that based on um, Chase's, Chief Justice Chase, he, even though he wasn't acting as a Supreme Court justice at the time, based on his opinion, Congress then enacts two provisions. One is a civil law provision to which allowed people to enforce the 14th Amendment against insurrectionists. And one was a criminal provision, which has come down to us as Section 2383 of the, cu- the current criminal code, which is the insurrection statute. And what I – now, the civil law provision, for whatever reason, it was enacted in 1870 – it was repealed in 1942, and nobody seems to know why, other than that it might have been a restructuring of the of the federal code, and they left it out for whatever reason. But the criminal provision, which Congress enacted to enforce the insurrection provision, is still there. So implicit in that is if you want to prove that someone's an insurrectionist, indict them and convict them of being an insurrectionist. And if they did that with Trump, then he'd be taken off the ballot, and, ri- and rightly so, but they haven't done that. There you go. Well, that's all the time we have. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thank you, Andy McCarthy. Thanks, Rich.